Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. It was pretty clear to us early on that this is going to be significant, but also uh, maybe different across the United States. You want to text me, you want to message me, you want to call me, you want a video, you want to see me in person during this time, you want to see me in a parking lot and I'll stick a Q-tip up your nose. <laughs> you know, any of those are fine. Because we have our approach of how we standardize operations at scale, we were prepared early on to serve. We had a national approach on PPE. We had to build, like everybody else, a national supply chain. We did some improvisation. It's really not that different from how we work every day. We don't have pandemics every day. And so, you know, in a high growth startup, we got to move fast. We got to respond quickly. That was Amir Rubin, CEO of One Medical, which leans on digital tools to provide health care for employees at more than 7,000 companies. When coronavirus hit, One Medical received a deluge of outreach from members as anxiety and uncertainty about health ailments ballooned. The company also became a key player in testing for COVID-19, working with mayors from New York City to Seattle. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of The Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Amir to better understand how virtual tools and testing are changing healthcare during the pandemic. Reopening the economy will depend on safely monitoring and screening workers, students, and everyone else. And no one has clearer on-the-ground insight about what that really means than Amir. We'll start the show in a moment. Afterward, from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran. Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business, and she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs.
I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Amir Rubin, CEO of One Medical, a membership-based primary care practice serving about half a million patients across the U.S. Amir is coming to us today from California as I ask my questions from my home in New York. Amir, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here with you. There's so many topics for us to talk through as COVID-19 has disrupted practices and raised all kinds of new questions about health and the health business. Early this year, One Medical had its IPO, which is usually a triumphant moment for a business. When did you begin to get an inkling that COVID-19 might impact those plans? It takes a lot of energy and effort to get to the IPO line. We were shooting for the end of January. So here we are, it's January 31st, and three pieces of news come out around that day. But first piece of news is there's this weird virus in China that might impact the supply chain. Second piece of news is, looks like Brexit's happening. And the third piece of news is the president was just impeached. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this would be a good day to do an IPO. Uh, <laughs> so actually on our IPO day, really the market was really, it seems to me that was most spooked about actually what we now know is COVID-19. Ironically, the other two things weren't really moving the market or so the pundits were saying. So we pretty much knew from then that this was going to be an impact. And when did you start to see it in your business? I mean, you're located in major urban markets. I know in, in a lot of those markets, hospitals have seen sort of booming numbers of COVID patients while their kind of normal patient flow has slowed down. We saw impacts in two different ways. So as you mentioned in the introduction, we're, we're this membership-based primary care platform that combines digital health and in-person care and testing. So who knew you'd want digital health and testing during these times, right? So at some level on the digital health and testing front, we saw increases there. And then as we went to shelter in place in a lot of communities, we saw reductions in in-person care. You could see differences across markets. Just in our early weeks, we were seeing positive rates in our tests of 15, 20 plus percent in New York City, and we're seeing 3% in Phoenix. So it was pretty clear to us early on that this is going to be significant, but also uh, maybe different across the United States in different cities. The testing in New York, how does that get set up that you are taking that role in the, in the testing across uh, a city? We're a leading medical provider in New York City, in San Francisco. We serve 7,000 companies. We serve some well-known companies like Google or SpaceX. And frankly, we serve a lot of people, including who work in government, who signed up as individuals. And because we have a national model, the One Medical Performance System, or TOPS, how we standardize operations at scale, we were prepared early on to serve. We had interfaces with labs. We had specimen uh, vials. Uh, unlike most doctor's offices, we always did phlebotomy. We always did specimen collection. We had a national approach on PPE. We had to build, like everybody else, a national supply chain. We did a lot of running to uh, Home Depot to get painter's suits early on. We did some improvisation. And we have a really strong service-oriented culture, and our people like hey, if people aren't coming in the office, let's go just do this in the community. And then we started connecting up with people in different markets. We've also done this for Lyft drivers. We've done it for 
any healthcare worker, we just said, we'll, we'll open up. And then I think the city governments were like, hey, who are these folks? Can they help us? So as you describe your business, it sounds like there's the virtual business, the telehealth part of the engagement. There's sort of on-site at companies where you do things, and then you have your own offices. And sort of each one of those areas might have been dealing with this crisis slightly differently. It, it is right, Bob. And it's a little more seamless across it. Our model starts with this concept of you're a member. So you're one medical, we're gonna look after you. You wanna text me, you wanna message me, you wanna call me, you want a video, you wanna see me in person. During this time, you wanna see me in a parking lot and I'll stick a Q-tip up your nose. <laughs> you know, any of those are fine. Moreover, since we know who all our members are, cause they're signed up as members, we'll reach out to you, which we did. Concerned about COVID, anybody in your house, anybody have symptoms? And so our approach is this longitudinal relationship with people. And certainly different modalities of how we serve people were impacted differently. So even on our digital health, for example, we, we always had kind of a structured questionnaire approach and you can kind of have a structured conversation or you could always just message as a provider or you could do a video chat. Well, during this time, we stood up kind of a structured questionnaire around COVID. Here are the symptoms, fill this out, and we'll reach out to you. And boy, then you want maybe a test? Let's schedule you. You don't have to go stand in a line. You need to be seen in person. We took some of our offices and we transformed them into what we called respiratory care clinics. So the staff looked like the staff in emergency rooms. We're in full PPE all the precautions. And then we had other offices that were like for the non-COVID symptomatic patients. So even within the digital uh, arena or even within the physical arena, we did more kind of segmentation. And then we also said, well, if you can't come in to see your provider, you can book a scheduled virtual visit with your provider. Did your patients respond the way you expected them to in the outreach about COVID-19? Yes, they responded as we thought they would and we were surprised by some things. <laughs> I think our model makes access very frictionless. So you can get on the app and we bundle all the on-demand digital health into the membership. So we're not charging a copay or deductible or billing. So in normal times, our members engage with us about seven times a year. And we have a 47% monthly active use rate. So people are on our tech like every other month. So in the first few weeks of March, oh yes, people reached out in, in extraordinary levels because we don't put barriers to them reaching out. Now, to help ourselves and to still perform at that amazing service level, we said, okay, well, how about having this COVID questionnaire? We're gonna ask you these questions anyhow. How about filling that online? How about we'll call you? Like we, we did things to manage the immediate surge in demand. So while there was a, a, great, a great influx, it wasn't unexpected and our members were so grateful, you know, and part of, I think, healthcare is, certainly you wanna help people medically when they have acute conditions or help them with chronic conditions to change. But often it's about alleviation of anxiety. It's uncertainty. You know, how's my child? Are they going to be okay? Like there's nothing, there's no worse feeling and there's nothing scarier. So in two or three minutes, somebody's talking to you and maybe having a video chat and maybe listening to your child, right? Like, oh my gosh. And like, 
no, it's it it's it doesn't sound like COVID. We have a tight bond with our members. We have ninety plus percent retention on our direct to consumer and our B two B and our enterprise clients. So they stay with us. We know them. <laughs> they were very grateful in general during this time of COVID. You mentioned the anxiety and the uncertainty, and uncertainty is definitely a core part of the COVID experience. It seems. I'm curious. You you do so much testing. What kind of testing matters? I I think we need to think about testing or more broadly screening in terms of what are we trying to accomplish. At one level, sometimes we want to test and screen and assess if somebody has COVID. And then there's a separate question of how do we want to screen a population on an ongoing basis? Both are important and we need to do both. So in an acute diagnosis, the PCR testing is really at the crux of the diagnosis. One of the important things on any of these tests is making sure the test is sensitive and specific, right? You want to capture the actual positives and, and you don't want to miss any, you know, positives, right? And early on, we were actually having many, many calls with the chief technology or chief uh, quality uh, or chief scientific officers at the labs because even something at a 90% sensitivity or specificity, which sounds pretty high, but if there's kind of a little bit of epidemiology here, if there's very little prevalence in a community, say in my community in the Bay Area, it looks like maybe there's 5%. A test that's 90% sensitive and specific will only have maybe a 50% positive predictive power. Now you have some of these tests that actually have 100% specificity, 99% specificity, that'll tell you something else. Now in, in New York City, where you might have 15 to 20% prevalence in a community, a slightly lower sensitivity and specificity may give you a better result. So one, understanding what, first, what test you need. By and large, it was the PCR for diagnosing acute, understanding who we're sending it to, what's their sensitivity and specificity, what platform is it on, and there's a lot of trade-offs here. There's some tests that turn results quicker, but they have lower sensitivity and specificity. So you might have a different protocol in New York than you would have in San Francisco because of the population. Y you might ultimately, or said slightly differently, you might have greater confidence in a result based on the sensitivity and specificity and the prevalence rate in the community. Now, the body generates antibodies in fighting off infections. And there's some antibodies that come earlier on when there's when it's fighting a virus and there's some that come later on all this immunity talk is the antibodies that come later on the igg that you know you might have heard about the immunoglobulin g then there is the igm which is usually produced sooner in the condition so there is in theory the the pcr would pick up the condition in a, in an earlier time frame but if it's too early it might miss it so there could be logic in the acute phase to running PCR plus IgM. Now, there are some funky things we're more seeing in the results. And the testing is evolving. But conceptually, that would kind of give you a window into the, call it the first seven to 10 days. It is then now the IgG antibodies that everybody's excited about, like, did I have it? And, and, and does that confer immunity? 
We don't know really if it confers immunity and for how long, right? And if the virus mutates. But I think the the hope is at least you will have some, you know, built up tolerance antibodies to the condition. That's, I still think, the the running hypothesis. I want to try to summarize that to make sure I understand it. There's testing that we do when it is a, a more acute phase, when someone is perhaps showing some symptoms, that you can do the PCR test and you might add an antibody test to that that's looking at these earlier stage antibodies, which would improve your confidence about the results in combination. And then there's the screening that would happen later for uh, antibodies that would come later that might describe or imbue immunity, right? That was right, except let's talk about the screening a little bit more. The antibodies and the immunity are the fun thing that everybody wants to know from the individual perspective, but not actually if we want to keep in the short term the work site clear. We actually want to know if somebody is currently infectious, Right now, we want to go back to work, back to school. Now, I like to say it's not really back to work. Many people are working, it's but back to work site, right? Work site reentry. So we have a program we call it One Medical Healthy Together, and so this is really about ongoing screening. And so, sure, it could be about testing, um, but are we really going to test every person every day before and after their commute? Um, may not be practical. So at a minimum, we could screen every person every day by asking them questions. Do you have any symptoms? Anybody in your house have any symptoms? Have you traveled? Have you been exposed? Anybody in your house been exposed? And so by asking these questions on a routine basis, um, and do you have a temperature? We've actually run some machine learning models so far, and, and these are looking highly, highly correlated with PCR positive testing. Right, and so we wanna be vigilant, we wanna be screening. So we've built this into our app. So an employer can roll this out, an employee can fill it out on a daily basis. Uh, they can also push a button and get their tests and they can get their test results. And if they're positive, they can talk to a provider, right? So we have the full suite. But on the back end, we can do reporting to the employer. Here's your 5,000 employees and here's how their risk assessed today. You know, these 4,900 said no symptoms. And these 100 said symptoms were somewhere in between. So testing or screening, you know, is relevant in acute diagnosis, but also in how do we want to surveil a population over time. The new service, the new product that you've sort of created, recognizes that if you have certain screening questions, that there is a high correlation in those answers combined with temperature testing as to whether this is someone who it makes the most sense to do a more extensive test with. Yes. You know, I will say actually pure temperature alone isn't very correlated because the asymptomatics don't have temperature. So it's the combination of all the questions is really what it is. You know, having the, the thermal gun at the door will miss most everybody because they're asymptomatic. And by the way, they're already at the front door at work. Maybe they should have taken the temperature at home is kind of what we would recommend, right? The reality is, we won't end up testing everybody every day before and after their commute, so you'll never be perfectly assured. So in the meantime, you wanna do other risk mitigating things. So you're still gonna to wanna to rely on kind of screening questions. You're gonna still wanna be smart about that. You're still gonna to wanna to rely on some social distancing. You're still gonna to wanna to rely on 
probably masks or double masking, right? Each of us wears a mask. Um, and it's the combination of all of these things that is risk mitigating. There is no perfect test, even though some of these are getting to closer, right? You, you, you're, you're probably not gonna have continuous testing, but we can do a lot to mitigate the risk. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just, like, share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was, like, sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the <laughs> newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Several of the executives that we've spoken to for this podcast talk about having to become medical health experts in new ways, educating themselves that that's not necessarily their area of expertise. Are you one of the those people that uh, these business leaders are reaching out to? Yes, they are. Thankfully, we have incredible medical leaders, epidemiologists, public health experts. I'm just the parakeet here repeating what I've learned from my experts. Now, I do have a degree in public health myself, but we actually have experts on this. Those people came out and they're like, here I am. <laughs> so this program, we call it Healthy Together, is, is just that. So we're working with employers on their programs. And it's, it's, it's this screening approach. It's this testing. It's thinking about cohorts and how to bring people back. And look, many organizations are self-included, have been running the whole time. We were out there doing testing. We had to do PPE. So, you know, and there's others who are in manufacturing. Employers have gotten up the learning curve. Society is, is moving up the learning curve. And so we're having really great discussions, you know, with banks, with technology companies, with manufacturing companies, with professional services companies. How do you mitigate and manage risk, but, you know, keep your mission alive and keep doing what you're doing and address your community and ultimately um, your employee base, right? How do you keep them confident and comfortable and manage their anxiety and stress during this? And, and these are the kind of things we're working with on employers. When I think back to your, your IPO, which was not that long ago, and it sounds like you have a whole range of new businesses. Am I thinking of that the right way? Yeah, I would characterize it as further features and proof points on our core model. So our model was always membership-based, relationship-based. We always had enterprise relationships. 
We always met with those enterprise leaders. We were typically talking about Breast Cancer Awareness Month or, or Mental Health Awareness Month, and we would roll out initiatives for that. Or we would do in-app screening, or we do outbound population health, or you know certain areas of focus. We added pediatrics. We've added more uh, virtual behavioral health. You know, now we had to add locations in parking lots. Okay, we didn't think about that. That was that was new, but you know, we always did testing. We always had locations. We always engaged with employers. So I think this is partly what's allowed us to move so quickly and serve kind of at scale during this time. And at some level, I'd say not only not miss a beat, but probably in, a, in its own twisted way, get energized by this and, and be able to move faster because this is consistent with what we want to do and who we are. Yes, we did have to roll out new features. We did have to recode things on our software. Like, how do you schedule in a parking lot? Which room do you book them into? You know, parking slot 97? Like, how are we going to do that? Um, so all of that we had to do on the fly. But we had kind of this operating system, this framework of how we work. Uh, we had a culture. We had a, a mission that all of that was very aligned to. So that maybe, maybe shrunk the gap of the change that it might have felt like to the organization. I can imagine some continuing new areas like, uh, I don't know, testing at a, at a hotel as people are coming in as part of a hotel package. Well, I don't know if that was just a riff, Bob, but we just had a press release two days ago with uh, Montage Hotels, and that's what we're doing. <laughs> we're offering this to their guests uh, because during this time uh, for travelers, you know, is safety and, and health uh, a high of mind? Yes. So that is actually something we are doing. And we just had our earnings call last week. We were growing nicely in the first quarter. I call that BCE. That's uh, before the COVID era. Uh, and also in CE, in the COVID era, right? And so now there's also just these further proof points. Also during this time, we had a paper published in, in JAMA Network Open, the Journal of the American Medical Association, that showed that our model took out 45% of the health benefits costs, 45% of the health benefits costs for an employer account. So, you know, that's another proof point. It's kind of just building on kind of the core of what it is we do. And our model is well positioned because it is multimodal. It, it's not just digital. It's not just inbound responsive virtual. It's outbound uh, proactive digital health. It's not just virtual video, it's messaging, it's text. It's apparently not just an office, but can be in parking lots, right? And, and uh, because the people are flexible and the tech was flexible. So that was all within our DNA uh, kind of coming into this. There are a lot of businesses that are struggling with the uncertainty about planning for the future. For you guys, you obviously feel like you're on a trend where you're going to be growing anyway. How do you plan out and look at what the future is going to be? So a few things. One, we're always looking towards what's next. Right as we were in the first few weeks of this, as we were working on how do we get PPE and how do we stood this up, we were also thinking about how are we going to get people returned to work? And then we were thinking about, well, hopefully there'll be an antiviral and then eventually there'll be a vaccine. So we're thinking about all of those phases. And, and partly not because we're such great prognosticators, that's actually how most diseases work, right? Like there is Tamiflu and there is a flu vaccine, right? And we do administer those things and people do get them. And there are, you know, 
analogs in, in other conditions. We hope those come soon, and we don't know, you know exactly when these things are going to come, but those are not unreasonable uh, future states to think about. And how would we be prepared? How would our tech platform need to adapt? How would the physical location need to adapt? Gosh, if in this country we need to vaccinate 350 million people, maybe we're opening the parking lots again, right? <laughs> so we have what we call strategic alignment and deployment. So how do we across all of our departments have some alignment on what these future states might be? And how do we have cross-functional teams planning of that? Then how do we do improvement and innovation work? Uh, think think about that as, as lean and agile and uh, design thinking kind of approaches. And how do we think about always from the user perspective on out, we kind of put the member at the center of everything we do. And then the third area we call active daily management. It's great to have a strategy and goal or a perspective on the future. It's even fun to have some improvement teams. But what do we do each and every day always that you can execute at scale at 90th percentile plus performance? We have to develop standards. We have to hard code it. We have to train. We have to onboard. Uh, we have to every day go to the field and observe. I do put my mask on and go to our clinics and observe, but we do a lot of Zoom observations as well. And because we have that approach, we can stand up sometimes overnight what we talked about today on testing, right? Like that's all evolving every day. Well, we go out to our thousands of of team members and in a day or two we've got the new approach or how we're going to disinfect in an office or how we're going to run a respiratory care clinic or how a person who works at the front desk is going to don and doff PPE right how do you get thousands of people trained in that quickly well you can't and not easily unless you have an operating system because we're able to roll that out in a standard way nationally quickly that also prepares us to adapt quickly. So one is we think about scenarios for the future, but then two, we, we build a, a framework and it's the same on our technology stack. You know, it's built in a modern way with modern APIs and working with agile teams, we uh, reposition some of those teams. And it's really not that different from how we work every day. Yeah, we don't have, you know, pandemics every day. And so usually the, the future states are a little more predictable. But, you know, in a high growth, if you will, startup or early IPO mentality, we got to move fast. We got to respond quickly. So this is, again, the kind of way we should be responding every day. And frankly, maybe that's even some of the fun lessons for this from us. Like, oh, we can move even faster. <laughs> I want to pivot a little bit and ask you a little bit about your, your personal experience. You mentioned that you go to clinics you, and you visit and observe. And I'm curious what that experience is like for you. Yeah, so I'd say the first thing is I'm not doing anything special. I would say much of what I've been doing is is remote. And during this later times, I've made some some visits, but... But this is less about me and what I'm doing. It's really how do we run our company? And we want to be a company that we're connected to each other, that we're connected to our members, we're connected to our clients. And you can do it through Zoom. You could do it through in person. We're seeing COVID patients. I mean, uh, and that's what we do. So we, we need to do that thoughtfully and not mix inappropriate people. And, and we've done very thoughtfully. But I'd say the broader point is, um, 
how do we keep our ear to the ground of what's going on with our amazing team members who are out there on the front line? We also have our, our physicians in New York City who have volunteered in the hospital wards and in the ERs. Because in addition to our own clinics and testing uh, sites, they're like, hey, we have some more capacity. They're the amazing heroes. My putting on a mask and coming and saying hi is, is irrelevant. So I have been tested. But part of what I wanted to see when we rolled out the app, how the result came in, what it looked like, what the experience was. I wanted to go do it myself. I wanted to get the in-clinic experience. You know, so, and it's not like I'm secret shopping. We do this all the time. This is what we're doing in our process improvement. It's not like I know what the magical answer is, but you get more perspective on it. You're like, oh, okay, that worked pretty well. You know, I would tweak this thing. And, uh, you know, I try not to be the annoying CEO who says, well, what about these five features, right? But like, but it's not just me. When the whole company is doing that, you have much greater insight into the experience. We want to get close to the experience, close to the process, close to the team who's doing the work, you know, how would we make this work easier for our team members? What would we need to do to make them feel more comfortable during this time, uh, to build up their confidence? How's it working? Um, those, are, those are the things that we learn by kind of going and seeing. I, I take it your test uh, turned out okay? I just wanna ask that question. Yeah, I tested positive for loquaciousness. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier the challenges about anxiety and stress in this time. Are you stressed? Probably the short answer is no. I like to say I have a lot to do with a very short amount of time and a whole heck of a lot is riding on it. <laughs> but there's no stress. <laughs> but, but, you know, I feel very, very fortunate to work in an incredible organization with an incredible team that has a mission that's to transform healthcare and at the crux, we want to be human-centered and technology-powered. And I see an amazing window of opportunity here, A, as a company, not just in this COVID time. You know, we're post-IPO, we're growing. Like, this is an opportunity to be transformative in healthcare and to be transformative in people's lives. I think that's super exciting. And to me, it's very energizing. This is a stressful time for a lot of people because there's some terrible things going on. People are getting sick. People are dying. People are losing their jobs. And, and that gives me great anxiety. I have friends who have been sick. I know people who have died. Uh, I have uh, many colleagues and friends who have lost their jobs. That is, that is very stressful. Seeing that suffering, that, that is tough. And we're seeing it in our membership base. We're seeing, and we're seeing it in society. So we're seeing the rise, hundreds of percent increase in, in our diagnosis uh, across our, our members of anxiety and depression. Not surprising, right? So uh, we've also expanded our services as a result there. We call it Mindset by One Medical. We've always had actually these group sessions or group visits uh, that use cognitive behavioral therapy and coaching techniques and now we have those virtually and we have virtual coaches and we have therapists and we're, we're seeing a, a rise in that need. Look, there's a lot being thrown at people and people are dealing with a lot of, of, of stress and anxiety. So we recognize that. We recognize it in our employers and their employee bases. We have to recognize it in our own team members, right? Um, we have physicians there on the front lines putting PPE in the early stage of this thing. Yeah, that's scary. I think also, frankly, it's why I like getting into things. When you get into it, 
It's like if you think back to your school days, right? Like you were stressed and anxious when you didn't, when you were not studying and waiting till the last minute. Once you jumped into it, you're in it, right? Like, so I like to get in it and I don't have time to think about anything else. I'm just in it. Like I got to do these things and I enjoy doing those things, but we do have to recognize what's going on uh, for our, our society, our world, really, um, and, and be cognizant of that. For listeners who are feeling stressed and anxious right now, do you have any uh, advice for them? Any suggestions about how to manage that stress? Yeah, well, I actually, maybe why I feel like I'm managing it well is I've used the One Medical program. So we have a great program called Shift, which is a group, uh, a group visit session, and now it's virtual. So you could do it online. I also recommend putting a half an hour of a Seinfeld rerun too. That works for me too, uh, just to keep it light um, as well. Yeah, we, we, we all need respite uh, in, in all this. Are there things that are about the coronavirus era specifically that accelerate some things, that make some things easier? You know, I would say that even before COVID, the current system was not meeting the needs of all of its stakeholders. Spending 18% of GDP in the U.S. on healthcare, um, many studies show over a third of it is considered waste. We actually underinvest in primary care and healthcare. We spend about, in the U.S., we spend about 5 to 7% of the premium dollar on primary care versus about close to 14% in OECD nations. The average wait time to a family practitioner in the U.S., is about 29 days. And the average premium for a family is $20,000. So we spend a lot of money, there's a lot of waste, and it's really hard to see anybody. Now, we have excellent providers, excellent hospitals, and for those who can have access, there can be really high-quality care. But, but that's frustrating to all the key stakeholders. 50% of family practitioners in the U.S. show symptoms of burnout. They're paid, typically compensated on a fee-for-service basis. They get paid for every visit. So what does that economically incentivize? Very short visits and refer everything out to a specialist. Not only does it cost more money, but they're not productive, right? And then the and physicians are frustrated by the, we call it the burdens of desktop medicine, all this electronic health record and billing and coding and authorizations. And that's not what they, they got into this for. And then we see the, the, the health networks, the health systems, the plans, they're trying to de develop these coordinated care networks, but they're frustrated. Um, they're spending a lot of money, but the care isn't more coordinated. So we come in and we say, we transform healthcare for all those stakeholder groups. And now we're showing we could take out costs. So really changing the healthcare ecosystem for consumers and employers, but also then for the supply side. So for providers, we said, even though most of the US and the world, frankly, pays a fee for every visit, we're not paying you a fee for every visit at One Medical. You're on straight salary. So we'll do whatever's the right thing, Bob. Um, and that ends up driving lower utilization. And it actually is more rewarding work for providers. We spend more time. And then we built kind of a virtual team that can uh, intercede in between uh, sessions so we can work on chronic diseases. And then we built our own technology that shows we have about 44% less work in our electronic health record than you'd see in other ones. So the providers are happier. And then finally, we interfaced into the existing ecosystem. We accept insurance, we build digital interfaces to the hospital systems and the specialists so we can help coordinate across a continuum of care. So, you know, fundamentally, 
why healthcare transformation is hard is there's so many stakeholder groups. And what we've done is we've taken a human-centered and technology-powered model and tried to address some of the needs of each of the stakeholder groups simultaneously. And that is what's so powerful about our model and why I think we can excel into the future. I really appreciate Thank you for spending so much time with us and for sharing all your, your thoughts and ideas. Amir, I really appreciate it. Bob, it was a pleasure. Great being with you. Take care. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large, and Masters of Scale host, Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producer is Jordan McLeod. Scripts by Christina Gonzalez. Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday and Daniel Nissenbaum. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson and Lena Sillison. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Adam Heiner, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.